Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who has a giant mural of his boss painted on his wall. This is a normal <laughs> thing. I am I am the Adam Glass, and uh, I <laughs> I have a giant mural of you, actually, because I consider you my boss. I mean, this is yeah, uh, that checks out. We're each other's boss right, as right. far as this is concerned, really. Uh, so I painted your face on my bedroom door. Uh, well, around my bedroom door. So really, I walk through your mouth. Right, right. Uh, and that's how I enter to record every session of our podcast. Well, I mean, you know, I, I did the same thing. Unfortunately, there was a, a size problem. And I don't have a door on the thing I painted yours on. So you just have a gaping mall. Okay. That it makes sense. Closed, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just... Everything below yeah, my, is, well, below my, well, you know, my it's nose. an archway, right? So, like, it's like, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you just have oh, no chin. Yeah. You look like, uh, you know, something yeah. out of a horror movie. It's fine. Yeah, just follow the curve of my mustache. Exactly. It's fine. The nega goatee. Yes. The worst of yes. all yeah. I, mm, Yes, for sure. Well, every so often the dog hangs out in the doorway, and that's, that's an interesting look. <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. Pat, before we get started this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for just a dollar a month, you can access to a bonus episode and help keep us going. Uh, there's over 50 bonus episodes now. We did we do one a month for every month except December. December, we do the uh, holiday special that gets uh, a regular release. Uh, so everybody gets access to that bonus episode. Uh, it is always a non-criterion film, and we do let our supporters vote on what we're going to watch. Uh, and we have a lot of fun with that. The fifth option of every vote is always Kazam, the 1996 children's movie, which they have made us watch a couple of times. But usually, I make a good enough list that they don't make us watch As Kazam. As we discussed, we are, we are making some assumptions there that, the, that it's because the list is good enough and not that they don't. They just hate Kazam so much. <laughs> They might just take Kazam. It's possible. It's possible. Kazam is not a great movie. If, no. Especially if you're coming it to the first time as an adult. If you saw it when it was age-appropriate and it was new. Well, yeah, some uh, of that nostalgia will probably carry you over a little bit. Although, yeah. you know, I don't know. I think we're all getting a little worn thin on the nostalgia culture stuff. Uh, and That's most possible. of the time when I revisit yeah. old things, I'm like, well, no, this was terrible. Any case, doesn't matter. Uh, we have fun over there. We watch a lot of great movies. That's all at a dollar a month. You get access to all those bonus episodes, the back catalog. You get a vote on the new ones. Uh, you get to suggest lists if you want. And if a supporter does suggest a list, we try to get them on because it's always a good time to talk to somebody about a movie they love. That's just, it's fun to do. So that's all at a dollar. A little above that, at $5, we like to thank those people on air for helping keep us going just a, a little bit more. Uh, thank you so much to Stephen Goldmeyer, to Eric Coronado, Chris Otto, and to our newest $5 supporter, Andrew Jarrett. A little above that, $10 and above, we do something that I think is pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard and write a little personalized thank you note once a month, mail that off to you. Uh, you receive them once a month, but it may not be the same month, depending on how bad the postal <laughs> service is. 
uh, in that month. Uh, Maybe you'll get four at the I gotta same get time. Them printed, then they're shipped to me, and then they get shipped back out, and then it might be depending on where you yeah, are. This podcast I'm is a logistical saying. nightmare, uh, is what we're saying. I used to send them to Pat every Does month. Not do that anymore. I'd 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 get it printed out. I'd I'd write a note to Pat and send it back to him so that he could see the physical product. And it would take like yeah, six I would, weeks I would get, to get like, I usually would get so. multiple of them at the same time. Just Yeah. And they were... Because they'd just been Yeah, and they were like three months, four finally, months old. It was great. Had like 700 The pile finally got them. large enough. Yeah. yeah. Went through the Belgian mail uh, system. So depending on reason. where you are in the world, it could it could take longer. And it might be... It might be... You might get a bunch at the same time. Uh but in any case, we also like to thank our $10 and above supporters. So thank you so much to Jason Westhaver, Michael McGrath, Nina Bajnak, Patrick Yago, and Adam Speakerman. Thank our you very much. $10 and above supporters. Pat, this week we are finishing up the golden age of television. With some real bangers here. This was some real. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how serious you're uh, being. I'm being they, serious about <laughs> one and a half of them. One of them. One and a half of them. Okay, I'll allow it. Uh, we are finishing up with two episodes, both directed by uh, John Frankenheimer, both from Playhouse 90. And I have to apologize to Pat. I had originally told him that the entire uh, set of Golden Age of Television were one-hour teleplays. Uh, but it turns out the 90 in Playhouse 90 is because CBS decided we're going to one-up all those other shows. And we're not going to do a 60-minute teleplay. We're going to do a 90-minute like, teleplay. Which is really fascinating because does, has any other media worked in that way where they're like, oh, we got, we'll got, we do one better than you. We'll make ours a half an hour longer. <laughs> like, we're, like if, if that is how media worked writ large, every – well, wait. No, that is how media worked writ large. Every movie is four hours long now. Shit. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I do, I also love learning from the bonus features on this one with uh, Frankenheimer talking about the process that uh, they aired on Thursday night. I just I hadn't looked up. Yeah, what no, date, it's like weird. or what that day of the week like all these dates were. Like Thursday night, like what? Yeah. Like real good. Huh? Thursday night. Spend an hour and a half watching a watching a play I mean, on I television. Guess every, I also assume I guess there were every enough. Channel shut down at like ten p.m. anyway, so it's like you weren't going to be staying up that late. Yeah. But but also every other channel had enough of these already running that maybe they just didn't want to. Yeah, they're like, no, nope, Thursday night's it. That's the only themselves. one we got. Um, yeah, it's the only night that's left. Actually, Frankenheimer uh, has really interesting see. insights. Like he really does a really fascinating analysis of like how and why this is a thing of its moment and it can't exist any other time yeah. in history. It's very fascinating, actually. Yeah, it's really it's really fun hearing from him. Yeah, um, he's a, he's a smart cookie. I like uh, I like how he talks about how everyone, all of the live television directors he knows, uh, have back problems, right? Yeah, because yeah. Of the stress of doing this every other week for and this, uh, yeah, like this really bad sort of basically bad ergonomics combined with bad stress is like a recipe <laughs> right, for disaster. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's fantastic. He, uh, yeah, he's got a lot of great insights on this, but talks about it. As you said, as as a moment of time, because uh, most of this was happening before video right. was a There's thing. There's no magnetic period. tape. Uh, we are actually with our final one, with Days of Wine and Roses. Uh, we are getting into the moment where tape is something they could use, and they do right. Use. And he talks about how they like uh, they finally figure out how to edit tape. Right. 
after this. Right. They and out so how they use tape. tape, but they use it really, they can't use it the way we use it now. And it's like, oh, well, so like Days right. of Wine and Roses is essentially like kind of a swan song sort of thing, which is. Yeah. It's not actually. There's other which ones is after interesting. this, but like, it, yeah, this is, right. we're talking about the declining days of the teleplay, basically, at that point. Sort of a last of an era, even though play, I think Playhouse ninety itself lasted into well, nineteen sixty. See, that's the, that's the uh, weird thing. Is like it's important to keep in mind. We never. It's really weird. Like we lost. This doesn't exist anymore because they don't do live performances anymore. But the long yeah, form drama gimmick, is not gone. Yes. Like the long form right, right, TV right, right, drama right. is essentially the only thing on TV anymore. Uh, it's just not live anymore, <laughs> right. and 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 while live right. is very significant in the sort of like way that we sort of in, we internalize, it, we think about it, and we talk about it, uh, and was very obviously very important to the people who made it. In the actual final product, it's actually not that important, right? Like we're watching a taped version of a live performance, where like a, that they took from the 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 um, cinescope or whatever, and right. When you watch a drama on TV now, you are watching something that's been edited, taped. You know, it's, it's been record, it's been edited, recorded and edited, and, and, and all kinds of sort of manipulation has been done to it. But the final result you see is just a broadcast of that thing. Yeah, and or you know, not even a broadcast anymore because it's a stream or whatever. But like the right, who watches who watches broadcast? Well, what I mean is like <laughs> you know. Yes, it, yeah, but my my point is like something is playing this thing back to you. So like, for the actual audience, us, the fact that they have the ability to edit it and take multiple takes doesn't really affect the final product that we receive in terms of like what it is. It is a ninety or hour long drama, and yes. what the people who watched this got was a ninety or hour long drama. And yes, it was performed live, and they could make mistakes, and they had to practice it a bunch and perform it like live. But it seems like it, they did talk about people making mistakes in the in this, like some of the interviews, the featurettes. But in general, we've never seen one with a big mistake in it, right? Partially because we're watching a, a very, very curated list of these things, and most of them don't even exist anymore. But right. my point is, is that like if you were watching every night, you knew internally that it was live. And because that did literally nothing else existed. And, you know, now you internalize when you watch, you know that it's recorded, but that doesn't really affect your experience as an audience member at all. Mm-hmm. Like, because the the consummate professionals who were doing this live were probably 99% of the time doing a good enough job that you had the same final result, right. which is a good performance of this thing. It's like going right. to see a stage play. Like, the difference with the stage play is that, like, you're physically in a room with the thing being made, which which actually has a different physical paradigm to it. Whereas, like, you're still just watching a screen with a drama coming out. I don't know. My point is, like, right. this is obviously very significant culturally and everything like that. I'm not trying to downplay it. But, like, in the end, it doesn't actually matter to us as the audience that it was performed live. It matters very right. much to, right. to, to Frankenheimer. It matters very much to the actors. But it doesn't matter to us. Yeah. Yeah, it is much more. These are artifacts of a point in time where uh, the technical aspects were much more needed to be much more finely right. tuned. Right, everything has to be done exactly. And I, right. I, I don't even mean to say that to to downplay the technical workers on on things being made today. Right. Uh, 
and uh, but these were this was a situation we will have had a conversation with one of those technical workers. I mean, (laughs) it's just the difference is this is a situation where you literally could not make a mistake. Right. right, There's no there's no way to Um, undo a mistake. You just have to go with it. Yeah, I love Frankenheimer's story. I I forget it wasn't one of the episodes we saw, but he tells a story about somebody forgetting a line, uh, and he just cut the audio to the feed. Uh, announced the guy's line, like yelled it or or said it through the mic from the control room, and then and then brought the sound feed so that anyone watching at home just thought it was like a technical that error. their TVs had messed yeah. up for a second. Not that not that the actor had messed up. Blame it, blame it on the broadcast. Blame it on the local television. Don't blame it on any of your cast or crew. Right. Uh, is no one is ever has to, to know, to right? To like sort you of can thing. wait fifty right. years right. and then tell people that you did this thing. Yeah. Tell the story later. Um, admittedly, I think only twenty three years right. before they were telling. Yes, it, yeah. But... I mean, time is strange. Yeah, uh, but yeah, he uh, he also talks about how because of the technical aspects of doing it, that everybody was so intent. Everyone who did this was so technically oriented in their directing uh, that. Uh, they were just primed to go shoot movies. Right, after, right, yeah, yeah. After this were done. Uh, he also describes the uh, the ability to do live drama like this, um, live television like this, made them like blacksmiths uh, once videotape existed. Right. Like, no one needed to do this anymore. Right, right. Well, yeah, so. yeah, that, and it, it's a really fascinating thing. It's And it's like, this isn't blacksmith is an interesting example that he brings up, but this has like been true throughout like sort of media creation, right? Where like people acquire right. very specific sets of skills tuned towards a very specific environment that exists at a time, and then that environment just dissolves, and so you have a bunch of people with this really specific technical skill that's like, oh, this is this is a garbage skill now. <laughs> it's like this is just not useful. <laughs> it's cool, like you can tell people stories about it, and they'll be like, oh wow, that's really interesting, uh, but. In the end, oh, it's just gone. So like you, nobody needs so it. So you make wagon wheels. So yeah, make, well, exactly. So you make wagon and, and it's true of things outside of media, but I find the media ones really interesting right. because, you know, like yeah. meeting a person who programs in a language, who knows how to program in a language that doesn't exist anymore is fascinating, although weirdly useful considering the way capital works well, and stuff. Yeah. People who can program in fucking Cobalt right. can go fix the fucking jet, like uh, ICBM right. launch sites or whatever. Yeah. Uh, are super important, right? But like, those kind of like past technical skills for things like media creation aren't useful in that way, right? Like, no, right. a person who knows how to fix like, real who has like technical skills associated with like physical products that exist in the world that could still exist is a useful person who has a useful skill, although niche. You know what I mean? Like the kinds of people who know how to repair very specific old technical things. Whereas like for media crea- creation, it's like, well, no, this is not. Nobody's ever going to be like quick. Get me a get me a live TV performer in here. We need one ASAP. Like, <laughs> I need somebody who knows how to how to like how to run a. Like, I mean, I guess you know what? I bet it's on the technical end. He's saying that it's not useful anymore. I bet on the technical end, like the people who weren't on stage, but the people who were behind it, never had trouble because there are still a thing called live sports. And those have never gone away and have ever never been able to not be live. And I bet I would be, I would love to look into it, but I bet if you went and found like the people who ran the control booths, 
just moved over to like news TV or to uh, or to live sports or something yeah, like that. Because that that technical skill is still like keeping all these balls in the air all the time and trying not to drop any of them in a live broadcast. Right. right? That's still the same thing. Like live TV didn't go away. Live drama went away. So the actors and directors right. who could do that were suddenly not had a skill that wasn't useful. But I bet everybody else on the back end of it all were like, "Yeah, no, we just moved over to news." I do, I do, I do, well, I do. Weather at five or whatever. They, they, they had a decade before, uh, or maybe a decade and a half before their uh, their skills were really, really in demand for news creation. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, but, yeah. Uh, before the twenty four hour news cycle. Yeah, but I mean, but yeah. you know, live. I mean, live news has always existed. It just didn't go twenty four hours a day. Live sports has only increased over over time. So you know, they, I'm sure that those guys. It's just interesting to think about because they're Frankenheimer's coming very much from the the in front of the camera perspective, right? Whereas behind the camera, I bet none of those people. I mean, they all just transitioned to a different form of live TV. I'm sure. Right. All the all the directors transitioned to, to film, film, and he, yeah, and and the rest of that crew work. Right. Uh, you know. At one point, you know, at, at some point, a grip is a grip is a grip. Right, right, right. Um, well, and, well, yeah, certainly in know, certain every, of those roles, any sort of really any sort of media needs that sort of right, role. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, specifically, but, like, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's just but, interesting to think about. Like, the, the it, it is very interesting to listen to him talk about it, though, because you don't, I, this one, this, I don't, you know, we, you know, we'll peek behind the curtain here. We have not actually watched the first disc yet, so right. But so far, I really, really like Frankenheimer's interviews. In this, uh, they are they are adding something that the other disc didn't have for me, at least in terms of like a sense of context. Like those little featurette things at the beginning to set up the movies are neat, but they're very much like PBS broadcast feature like openers, right? They're very right. right they're right, very right. like surface level don't contain a lot of detail or depth they're just they're just priming you to watch the thing whereas the frankenheimer reviews are like real features where you're like oh shit like i'm learning right. stuff that i would have never been able to suss out but, on my own but even even the frankenheimer stuff is shot for that yes, pbs introduction we're just getting the full length uh, like recording of it right but but also i think it's just that you know They've talked to actors in some of the other ones we've talked about. They even talked to, you know, director in some of the other stuff yeah. we've talked about. But Frankenheimer is someone who still, I think, is thinking about what makes good television. Right. As he's shooting these interviews for a new television. Right, yeah, that's probably true, yeah. Uh, as it's him sitting at this very authoritative desk and, like, just casually talking to the camera about it. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, but, yeah. So, this week's episodes are... Uh, they are the comedian, which originally aired in on February fourteenth, nineteen fifty-seven. Directed by Frankenheimer, as I said, and written by Rod Serling. Uh, we'll probably talk about that one first, and then the second one is uh, Days of Wine and Roses, which originally aired October second, nineteen fifty-eight. Also directed by Frankenheimer and written by uh, playwright J.P. Miller, based on. Uh, just an idea he had about his uncle. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. As a lot of these teleplays you <laughs> do, that, sometimes they're based on a book, sometimes they're based on some original, like we talked about like originally they were all based on like, right. uh, like public, public domain, domain media. media. Yeah. And then at some point it's just like, well, I was at home thinking about my drunken uncle. 
right, right. And we I have to make fucking I hated it. 50 of these a year. So <laughs> right, pretty right, much right, every right. idea is a good idea. Yeah. Um, so the comedian stars Mickey Rooney uh, as himself. Uh, <laughs> possibly, actually. Uh, generally, it is assumed that the character is based on Milton Berle, actually. Okay. Uh, Milton Berle apparently saw the comedian and responded uh, to rumors that it was about him with, I wasn't that bad. Uh, but uh, Well, as long as he didn't do, as long as he didn't do the, the Nazi thing where he just assumed that the bad thing was, you know, that we talk about, like, like, well, we banned it because it's obviously about us. It's like, well. Okay. Well, the, the interesting thing about the comedian is that it, uh, it was originally meant to be a magazine article. Okay. The, the source material was originally meant to be a magazine article and the author, um, his editors refused to print it on the belief that they would get, they'd be opening themselves up for a lawsuit, even, even with it fictionalized. Huh. Uh, so I, that doesn't it, sound right, but okay. That doesn't, that doesn't sound entirely right, but, uh, but it is interesting then that they just made it a one-off television show right, which, that no one would ever see again. Right. Which actually, yeah, right. That there's no recording of. So unless you were taking notes while you were watching it the first time, you have really have no basis to sue someone for whatever's said in it. Right. right? So yeah, you um, you made it essentially disposable media, so no one can ever track you down for right. it. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. It just exists. In an oh, what happened? Yeah. What happened to the script? Oh, they that. got shredded. Sorry, I don't. We. <laughs> yeah, they're gone. We they're gone. Those. Screenwriter. Screenwriter died. We stole it. The way they talk about this one coming together in the background material mm. is really fascinating because Frankenheimer insists that um, that Rooney showed up day one and had an absolute perfect interpretation of the character, did the table read, uh, Full, full on acting mode. Did the table read, and it was great. And he was so happy with it. And then they cut to one of the other actors who says, and then he kept changing it every day. Every well, right. day well, he'd show I think, up. Yeah, and, both of them kind of imply that like way. keeping him locked <laughs> right. down on the like good read was hard, right? Right, was hard. Um, and then, uh, and then Rooney, who honestly in in Rooney's videos his interview from the early 80s for this comes off like he is trying not to be the character and the comedian that he played uh, right yes. so it wouldn't uh he really he really seems like he's about to explode at any moment honestly yeah he then explains that he was what he what he terms an ex, extemporaneous actor yeah. um not an improvisational but extemporaneous uh the other actors complained that he would be he was improv. Well, those are, I mean, one of them is just a different, uh, essentially but, a different word for the same right. thing. Like, I guess the difference being right, that right, like right. extemporaneous would be starting with the same basic material and then not doing what, what's on the script. Whereas like improv would be <laughs> right, like starting right, from right, right. nothing. Um, yeah. Like I, it is very, it's a, it's a very intense performance. I'm not yes. going to say anything bad about the performance, but like when somebody, when you hear like, in like TV or film or something, somebody start being described in that way. All I can hear in my head is like pain in the ass. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's all I, in my head. I'm like, you extemporaneous seems like a very polite, like very fun way to say you are a pain in the ass. Like, 
You refuse <laughs> to right. just do the thing you're fucking being paid to do. Uh, which is, yeah, I don't know. I, it's like everybody seems to be sort of dancing around the idea that he was just, well, like Frank and I eventually had to like fucking like put him in, like, like sit him down and be like, look, this ain't going to work if you don't say the words that are on the page. <laughs> right, like, right. They will right. miss their cues, and they you will not get this. Will not be on TV. Like basically, like, yeah. like it was like what if you don't see these lines, there will be no close up. And if there's no, you know, like, yeah, you want to be up close. The cameraman yeah. doesn't know when to do the close up unless you say those lines. So if you don't get the, if you don't want the close up, you can improv whatever you right. want. Right. Well, it was kind of um, interesting because Frankenheimer brings that up in a sort of like unrelated top, like later on talking about like how the like cues and stuff worked, where it's like because it's all live. Something ha- takes three seconds to queue up. You have to say the line, so the person will move the camera or the queue up of like some recorded tape, like a film right, like right. roll. Everything has to slide together like a puzzle, and so you can see how somebody refusing to just say the words on the page would be like a death sentence to yeah. a performance. Like right. it, this isn't it live theater the where like you know you're you're like where like maybe it's your co your co star can like wing it based on your fucking around like no like there's a well, whole life, production life theater still right. has yes, there absolutely is. technical yes, absolutely. aspects that need to be done right. but not not certain aspects that need to be done so that the audience can see it at right all. Yeah, exactly yeah because right. their audience at least gets to see the visuals of it no matter what right 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 lighting obviously very important and, and timed often in theater absolutely yeah no i don't want to <laughs> downplay life theater. Still, i'm just saying that like you know what i'm saying there's a world uh, where like you have to go to commercial like in tv where it's like suddenly like the commercial break cuts off like the last 30 seconds of a scene right, because right, you right, didn't right, like right, fucking right, make right. your cues right that doesn't happen in live yeah. theater <laughs> like suddenly like a giant bills or like Marble Man ad just rolls down over the over the stage like <laughs> you can't see the performance anymore. Oh man, what if every curtain was was an ad? I mean, it was a different yeah, ad. Like, I mean, we're we're steadily marching there. Would be, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a point where that was true. I, actually, yeah, I, I bet but, there was actually. Uh, but I'm just thinking more like in my mind, it's become a whole separate thing where like it's it's apropos of like nothing without any control of the theater crew at all. And so like, they're just in the middle of performance and that separate curtain that nobody can see ahead of time just rolls down in front of the stage. It's like, Oh shit. Like they're just still talking behind it. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. I love, I, I say that because I love now that Hulu, when you pause on Hulu, it shows you an ad. Uh, yeah. Hulu's uh, become a hell space that like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, really everybody great. has, I mean, uh, now YouTube <laughs> makes you watch right. What fucking, two or three ads for every video you watch. It's like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <sighs> people got to get paid. No, I, don't, I wish I'm that not the people actually people making things were getting paid instead of the people. Uh, instead of a, an entire who's... class of vultures that just, <laughs> just, just yeah. leeches all, yeah. the, all the value out of everything. Yeah. We get a little peek at the behind the scenes process of getting a live show off the air with the comedian too. Uh, you know, because we get that opening scene where they're doing the rehearsal, right. right? And the cameraman's just sitting there, leaning on his camera after they call break, and the uh, the techs in the room are t- telling director how many minutes behind they are uh, for exactly you know those commercial right. break reasons and end of show, right? You know, something else starts at eleven o'clock, right? Yeah, <laughs> so you gotta you gotta be on time. It's just really fun, and Mickey Rooney is way too into it. 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, and it, and it and it works right in the in the in the movie right. in the show, but like, yeah, boy, it like you're like, is this all performance, Mickey Rooney, or is there some reality here? Feels like maybe. Aside from the stories we heard about Rickney Rooney on set for this and just showing up with random women and insisting that they get into the show. I uh, mean, you you mean despite those damning stories that we heard for this. Yes. Yeah. Right. 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 I don't I don't know any stories about Mickey Rooney being like especially. I don't know. Uh, aggressive to other I, people. On I, set or something. I feel like at some point in my life, I heard stories about Mickey Rooney exploding, like becoming Maybe. not necessarily like violent, but becoming like be being one of those people yeah. would like yell and berate people. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. This is very much like a like a distant memory from like a long but, time ago. But but also there's a there's a power differential in at play here too, right? Because Mickey Rooney is an established star right. who is pushing forty. Right. And John Frankenheimer is twenty seven and making T V. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and even if he is the most powerful TV director in his era, and maybe he was, I don't, I don't really know. Um, but also, there's but, there very clearly is a power differential there. Yeah, right. But but Mickey Rooney's showing up with some random woman from the street and saying, "Come on, Johnny, we got a we got a place for her in the show." Right. And it's like John Frankenheimer is not in a position to say no over the course of like the right. two and then he does it the yeah. next day, and then he does it the next day. Well, um, and you can see yeah. that even now in that interview, Frankenheimer is dancing around the topic a little bit. He's like, that was an <laughs> right, interesting right, right. situation or something like that. Like yeah, still yeah, being yeah. kind of like, um, he does talk about how beautiful the women yeah. were. So, you know, there's that, but, but I don't know. He's <laughs> got, yeah. he's got a weird edge to his voice when he talks about, it. he's like, it's like he's grasping for things to, as a positive to describe what was. Right, right, right. Really no, I definitely, situation. I definitely think Frankenheimer was mad about it and talking yeah, about exactly. it. Exactly. 100%. I think uh, I think yeah. commenting on the on the like wow like how beautiful the chorus line was when we were done was him grasping <laughs> at something positive to say about the situation. Yeah, because yeah. it's like well, like, yeah. I mean, I guess you had to create. Maybe there wasn't going to be a chorus line at all, or whatever. Like it's just like he's he just looks right. he looks kind of pissed, and it's like this is twenty five years later or whatever. Like. This must have really, well, many, really pissed you off at the time. If you're like 25 years later, you're there, like, man, I'm still pissed about there this. There what? There are like six girls in the chorus yeah. line. That's six rehearsals. And they had they had at least 10 rehearsals. Yeah. So like, yeah, probably. Probably every girl in that chorus line only existed. Well, which is a very Mickey fascinating Rooney thing to, to imagine that the chorus line, every every rehearsal just kept expanding, yeah. right? It's like, mm. yes. Yes. It's like, and they just like, nobody the lost to ignore this the is... fact that it just keeps getting longer and longer. <laughs> For that, bet- between the improving and him forcing <laughs> Frankenheimer to add a new character <laughs> every day, it's just a miracle that this one got filmed right, at all, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's kind of, I mean, this one seems like, this one seems like, we're going to talk about, um, Days of Wine and Roses, which is much more of a seems much more of a buttoned up production, just in general. Like, um, right, right, right. Yeah, this one is kind of wild because this one does have that kind of like teetering on the edge of oblivion feeling, kind of throughout the descriptions of it. Like, uh, like, um, it just doesn't. It 
And you could kind of see it in the production a little bit too. Like in the like this one feels just a little bit more wild, just in general. It just feels just a little and that's probably partially because it's a, a meta commentary. It's it's the thing talking about itself, which always produces this right. sort of weird reverberate reverberation within media when it starts talking about itself that can kind of create a, a funkified feeling. But um yeah, just the idea that like every yeah, this one just doesn't feels like it barely happened honestly yeah yeah like and mel torme being like oh yeah we we got mel torme the the jazz singer who like has never performed like, you <laughs> right, know what i mean like right, it all right. everything about this one feels like that where it's like oh yeah who's the who's the who's the like who's playing opposite mick uh the jazz musician or singer who has never been in a play but i've never been in a live perform uh television performance before right cool cool right right, right. This is yeah. He's probably great. This is gonna be fine. Uh, no problems. Oh wait, yeah, and we've was, added seven characters since we started the week. Yeah, yeah, this is all. Everything's going great. Yeah, but they don't have to talk. They just gotta. Well, I mean, I assume just, that that's probably the function of some sort of compromise. Where it's like, well, where where the right, fuck can right, we put right, these right, people right. that weren't in the script? Yeah. Clearly, they're not in the right. script, so we're not gonna write a new script. So they're gonna have to go somewhere that doesn't involve speaking. <laughs> right. Right. Um. Yeah, but Torme actually did do really well. I don't no, no, I don't want to downplay. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's actually pretty amazing when you consider the background on that, which is like this is something yeah. he has never done, has no, no, no relevant experience at all for. <laughs> this story is his character's dramatic arc. It is, it is him. Mickey Rooney's Sammy does not change who he is over the course of this. And and ultimately, Les really doesn't either because he comes full circle right. and, and resubmits to the status quo. But but he, uh, he's he got a more dramatic arc than, than Rooney's character does, certainly. Right. Well, um, and that's – and I, I, am fasc- I am fascinated by the actual story of this movie in the sense that, like, it does seem to be very purposely flying in the face of, like – storytelling conventions right um i would not expect and this may just be a bias on my part a tv what is essentially a tv drama a tv movie from the 50s to decide that like oh no 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 everybody's just going to be just as shitty at the end as they were at the beginning (laughs) nobody is going to get better in our in our story which doesn't feel like a '50s thing to me. You know what I mean? Like we we the, we've watched so many movies from the '50s that like, oh, we've got a bad guy. That bad guy either has to be punished or reformed. Like we can't. Yeah. The only the only character in a better position at the end of this than at the start of this is the guy who plagiarized the work of a dead yes. man. Uh, and got fired for it, and it's the best thing that's ever happened to him. Right. And, <laughs> or at least has happened to him in many years. And, and when you watch <laughs> it, you're kind of expecting Lester to have a similar arc. We're right, like, this right, will right. end this. And instead, it's just... And I guess that's... Storytelling-wise, that's, I think, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating choice because, right, you get that real dichotomy between, like, a person who... Oh, this, the way... Gets them out, and this doesn't. It's very good. The way it plays out with Lester, though. Lester, you know, he's. We get this montage of the show happening. That's just just audience laughter, right? And Lester is like s- sulking around in the background. Comes out on stage, uh, 
looking like uh, the guy from Network, rain-soaked and about to yell on Matt as hell, mm. uh, and then just slaps his brother live on television, live on his show. And he, Sammy cracks a joke about it, throws him on his shoulder, takes him off stage, and starts beating the crap out of him. Right. And then Lester's back in the fold and back in the status quo and back into the browbeat, and his wife seems okay with it now. I don't know. Uh, the way she leaves <laughs> seems pretty right, upset right, right. at the very but end. She, but she is back for that moment, right? Well, right, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think if, if the movie's missing, if the story's missing anything, it is more investigation of her internalities and Lester's to, to right. as well. Like, like, we get more of Lester than her, but they both, because it's a 90-minute drama for TV, it is, and also needs to include all the other characters. It, this one might, if this thing suffers from anything, I would say it's a few too many characters. Uh, that it, might be fair, yeah. They, it creates an interesting dichotomy, but the 90 minutes can't really hold them perfectly well. You know what I mean? It's a little bursting at the seams. Uh, and so, in my mind, we don't quite know enough about her internality to, like, really figure out what's happening at the very end of the movie. You know, we, we kind yeah. of have an idea, but we don't because, like, she was, I guess, prepared to cheat on him with his brother. But, like... You know what I mean? There's a, there's a lot going on that we don't really get to engage with at the end uh, because we've got to right, wrap up the right. story, right? The movie, the, the story has right. to end. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. This is this is the one where I wouldn't have minded seeing more. Right. Yeah, right? I agree completely. Like, per- we've seen a lot that were maybe almost too long for themselves, like for their own good. This one is yeah. not quite long enough. Yeah, particularly with Julie. But I, w- I would say fantastic- for, honestly, all the characters just don't other- – other than Mickey Rooney's character, which gets plenty of investigation, right, right. Inter- like internal investigation, every other character could use more time. I think, I think, if I were to rank them on that, you know, of, of on this well made up scale we just created, yeah, yes, Sammy. Sammy tops, but he's a pretty he's a one note character. Period. Right. But I mean, even if you spend more time is. on him, I'm right. not sure you're going to actually expand him as yeah. a character. Yeah. Because he is he is shallow Al, as a person. So, Al the head writer is the only one who ends the show in a different place than right. he started, and and also I think gets the most sort of internal. He does. He does. He absolutely struggle. does. And right. I'm, but like you can imagine a full length movie that's just talking about that dynamic and investigates more right, about right, right. like why he feels dried up. Like what I don't think he gets a decent arc. It's just I'm saying like. You could. We don't really investigate what makes him feel dried up. What makes him feeling like he can't do this job? You know what I mean? Like, we don't dig into that as much as one could, right? It's not so much the ending that needs more fleshing out for him. It's more the beginning for like how we get to that place. Right, right, right. We kind of because the movie's in a hurry. We kind of jump to that pretty quickly. It's like he's already washed out. He already can't come with jokes. He already, which is nothing wrong with the starting when the already after the characters in decline. But you you want to investigate what like what's right. making this person feel like they're in decline. 
Yeah, I do. I do like in association with with Al how information about Davy Farber is sort of just trickled yes. out over the course of the movie, mm-hmm. um, where we don't know what those scripts he has. He just pulled out these magic scripts yeah. from a drawer he had, uh, and then we find out that they belong to this guy named Davy, uh, who's everyone's talking about in the past tense, uh, and then, um, and then when he blows up at Sammy, Al says something about a suicide in in his closet, uh, which is interesting that that is not Davy. Uh, and how does right. you know, this implication of more bad things going on in, in Sammy's life that no one knows about? Um, because then the thing that the gossip columnist actually grabs a hold of is a third different bad thing. Right. <laughs> um, uh, well, it's, it's, but it's, yeah. it really does feel it's, yeah, it is, um, it is a really fascinating thing, and it, and I also am fascinated by the fact that like nearly every one of these movies we have watched has, in some way, had something that was trying to deal with the sort of repercussions of the war. Yeah, and while this one is a minor, is sort of minor as a plot point, every single one of these we've watched has had that in it, in some capacity or right. other. And this one here, it's talking about, in some ways. Not investigating it very deeply, but talking about how like those people who were involved, even the ones who, the ones who died, like have a sort of ongoing ripple repercussion effect into the future, right? Like they leave behind things that that they created, right, and that are part of their lives that that continue to sort of affect the people in the future who survived, right? There's a right, sort of, right. but we're talking. We're talking about stuff that was written and directed by guys who were right, well, between exactly, the ages exactly. of fifteen and twenty-five. Right. Well, and that's in and nineteen forty-five. The reason so, I think it's yeah. fascinating is is that in yeah. these movies that we have, it totally makes sense. It absolutely makes sense because this is a, a a major part of their lives, right? Like this is defining about who they are and who they were and like how their lives feel, right? Like the people around them, everyone they know went through a similar experience, right? It's that shared, exp- some some similar experience, that shared experience. Although, Frankenheimer would... He was born in 1930, so, yeah. Well, uh, well no, what I mean, it makes interesting been, is that like now we, we're already talking about Frankenheimer as a slightly off-kilter generation-wise. He's a director directing movies about a thing that he saw older people in his lives going through, but he didn't personally experience, right? You know, it's it's... It's right. fa- that's just a fascinating right. thing that's not really relevant, but just interesting. Unless he lied about his age and joined the army, at which 15, I don't, I don't think, think so. Yeah, did. no. Um, but he did come from a pro- politically conservative family, though, so maybe. Yeah, but. I mean, I, I'm just thinking that like that it, that's not super relevant, except for like already we're getting into that point already in like '57. You're talking about that thing where like somebody who's from a generation that didn't quite go through that is already interpreting the material of people who did right like it's only 20 it's only like what like 12 years on and already that shift is taking place right and then that shift has been a part of american life for fucking well forever now but it's just it's a background element of every story we've watched which is just i think very fascinating because the movies we've watched from a similar era haven't always tried to reckon with it at all you know what I mean? Like, we've watched a fair number right, of movies right. from the with, 50s that with, don't really talk about the war. Right. Obviously, with we a have few exceptions about the that war. we've talked about. But, right. like, 
We've watched <laughs> ones where they sort of like kind of pretend like the war never existed, where it seems like this TV we watched is much more frank about the actual experiences of the people of the era. You know, it's well, very it might, interesting. It's interesting. We had that bonus episode um, back in January of The Salt of the Earth. Uh, and one thing that's uh, that maybe is at play here, uh, TV is New York based, right? And film is California based, and the U.S. government seems more interested in controlling narratives in film uh, than necessarily TV. And I don't know if that's true. Maybe well, it's this not one true. was uh, this one was filmed in California, though, because when they talk about Playhouse oh, yeah. ninety, is from is from. TV City Playhouse 90 might, Hollywood. Right, right, right. Playhouse is coming out of California. But in, in any case, um, one reason we don't see these sorts of things happening in the early 50s in at least people talking about the war we, the way you and I want them to talk right. about the war, right, isn't getting done is because of House Un-American Activities Committee right. shutting so much of anything, anything that looks like criticism of the U.S. military machine uh, is going to get you labeled a communist and blacklisted, right? right? Um, whereas, I mean, it is Ron Serling. Ron Serling doesn't really seem like someone who really cared about getting labeled as a right, communist. Right, right, right. Uh, and maybe Frankenheimer as well, uh, particularly moving forward. Um, Frankenheimer also, actually, he did... Uh, he got drafted into the Air Force uh, in 51. Okay, yeah. Uh, and they put him in a photography unit, and that's how he learned how to how to shoot, which is very interesting. Uh, not shoot a gun, but shoot a camera. Right. Um, I, I, it, it, I don't think he saw any combat during the Korean War. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it's... I don't know, the whole thing is kind of fascinating because, like, the... Like it's like these these movies aren't, or these TV shows aren't particularly particularly critical, but they do talk yeah. kind of tangentially about veterans' issues, right? Like they talk about like this movie is not necessarily critical, but talks about a thing that like is real, right? Where like these sort we of remnants of the people you week. knew who don't exist any who don't are, alive anymore. These are young men writing and making these who are interested in the reality of life right right uh and there's the same impetus that gets called angry young men in a generation of playwrights in uh in england uh and ultimately you know they are you know sort of the next half generation frankenheimer's generation really i think more more than anything else they're the same generation that started the new waves in italy and and in in france a little bit later uh so, you know, it's people who, who lived through the war, who saw the effects of the war. And particularly when you're talking about the number of anthology television shows that are doing this exact same thing. Right. And as you already said, you tell a guy, you tell a guy, all right, we got to do one of these a week. Right. They're going to start maybe iterating you're not writing every single really one of quickly, them. Right. But yeah. you, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> even, even as you jump through different people, uh, you don't want them to tell their version of the same right. story. And so you're going to have to so, keep expanding outward. And I guess that's probably right. a big part of the difference. It's just amazing to me that, like, so, like, this this level of criticism, like, quote-unquote criticism, because they're, they're not necessarily critical, but, like, they're, they are bringing in things, the more un- a lot of these have brought in more unpleasant elements of 
the especially the right. aftermath of the war, right? Um, even if they're not direct criticism, we don't see hardly. It feels like any of that in film, like that. Even that level of like, oh, there was some negative. I mean, and we have seen some. It just it doesn't feel like right, right. If you're painting with a broad brush, yes, and, and we've, we've had we've had examples we counter absolutely this, have. but it is not mainstream in the way that a television show airing every Thursday night is right. mainstream. Right, and, and, and that feels uh, it feels that's funny right. to me that and like, probably like that probably not every single one of these was dealing. No, no, I'm with, sure not. But like, it sure seems weird that issues, every right? single one we like. <laughs> We're going on right. every single one at this point, uh, which is yeah. Well, I mean, okay. Again, you know, these are these are people drawing on their lived right. experiences in order to write as much as possible, um, and they are all people who lived through the war. So that's what they're going to write about because that's what right. they know. So, I'm just you know, I'm more fascinated by the fact that like nobody stopped it from happening. <laughs> Right, no one stopped it. Right, uh, the machine of capitalism, man. Yeah, it like just I mean, going. selling Marlboro uh, cigarettes apparently is more important than than justifying <laughs> right, the American right, war machine. Right, 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 like, right, right. Now, I mean, this, listen, it's also not exceptionally critical. No, I this know, one we I get know. a reference to a guy who died. No, I know. I, uh, I, I, I am know. aware of that. I, I mean, and a lot of people died, but it's not. You know, it's also not hiding it. Right. right. You know, I, this, I feel like a lot of guy who, what we we have, not a lot, but we have watched whole swaths of 50s movies that actually kind of pretend like the war never happened <laughs> like right. they just don't it's like oh this thing that like was is only 10 years ago what, what are we talking it doesn't exist i i wonder if maybe something like that did happen oh maybe if dave farber was meant to be the reference suicide that's possible and somebody was like ah this ain't gonna work yeah right uh a vet who committed suicide, but also wrote a couple of really great comedy sketches before he died, right. is maybe a weird, a weird space. Anyway, uh, not to say it is a space that doesn't exist. I'm sure it does, uh, but uh, plenty of very funny people have also uh, killed themselves. Ultimately, yeah. unfortunately, but but yeah. So maybe maybe there was a it's little. A, it's a weird. It is a strange place for in. a TV play to go, though. I will say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it kicks up the drama, and in a in a piece that is already just overfull of drama. But <laughs> well, uh, what it what it is, does is it does. Yes, it is. But what it does is it creates drama from somebody who isn't Mickey Rooney's character, like right, which right, is right, important, right, right, right? right? Like because Mickey Rooney's character is constantly every other character in the movie is is essentially in a battle to not let him eat the entire set before the movie yeah. is over, and it also. It also provides an opportunity for uh, for Mickey Rooney's character to exert exert control in a way that we hadn't seen him exert control yet, and that is the quick thinking spin. Right. He calls his publicist and says, uh, "We have these scripts." He doesn't even explain to the publicist what accurately is going on. He says, "We have these scripts. We're doing this stuff tonight. Make an announcement and say we're doing it to honor him." Right. Uh, Right. And because, you know, we don't have an exploration of how Al got these scripts and how Al is possibly the only person who has ever seen them in the entire world, which he states. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I guess it could be true. Uh, you would you would hope that they would contact a uh, a next of kin and say, hey, would it be OK? But um, well, and we all I mean, but obviously it's too late for that. Right. It's all, And but, also, like we. I feel like there's a sort of a subtle a hint at the sort of the actual nature of 
of uh, this kind of media where like shit stolen all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right, right, people right, steal right. things without Every taking single... without giving credit all the fucking time. Every single joke we actually hear in this episode is the most hack terrible thing. Oh yeah, <laughs> that it's, we've yeah, heard. absolute garbage. Yeah, that Carnegie Hall joke does not originate here. No, certainly, no. right? It is. It is fascinating to think that like they made a move. They made a story where like, well, we well first of all, yeah, we see that like, um, Miguelini's character doesn't. We see that what keeps him on top isn't just pure like being a good face for this sort of media right, empire. Right, He's right, also right. like very savvy, like very quick thinking, very savvy to keep, be able to keep himself afloat despite the fact that like a lot of people probably don't like him very much. Like, <laughs> right, like right. Th- th- there's something beyond just his like charm that's keeping him afloat, uh, which is interesting to see. It's it's an, an interesting addition to the to the story. What What's also fascinating is that like they I I'm still kind of overwhelmed by the fact that they just made a story where like the bad guy gets no comeuppance at all right like I, I'm right. not against this in any way or or think that it's like a bad choice it's just shocking from a move from a from like a 1950s TV story yeah and it what it tells me not. is that what it feels like it tells me is that things like Playhouse 90 and these t- these teleplays we're operating almost in a different space than like t- quote unquote regular TV was. Yeah, probably. And even within like five to ten years, when they could tape it, like in the sense that this was a this was t- like all, was legitimately t- like play style drama on TV, where like what yeah, where I like wonder... stage performances had already reached a point where they were more willing to talk about those kinds of things openly. Right. Maybe TV right. I wonder if we'll ever get some bonus feature back on disc one. You know, as as we stated, we haven't actually talked about disc one yet, despite this being the third episode, uh, just because of timing. I wonder if we'll ever get a bonus episode where someone actually just outright says, "Yeah, we did it," because who was going to stop us? Well, there's a certain element of that, right? Like you're 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 right? in two weeks. Like it's 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 borderline like black box theater, tiny like, like yeah. theater shit. We're like. What's, it's gonna be. It's gonna exist for one day. Who's gonna fucking stop us? We got two yeah. weeks. What's the FCC gonna do? Never let them air it again? Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. They're only. Like, I mean, you guys should get only the show shut down. Them. But like so. <laughs> the people who are selling the show are very powerful too, right? Like CBS, NBC. <laughs> right, these right, are right, very right. powerful entities. Are they gonna get their probably one of the best sell like best selling shows? Like, yeah. Is yeah. is the FCC gonna kick them off the air? Like, be like, oh, actually, Playhouse ninety is canceled i what what will marlboro say about that like (laughs) like, i don't know it's it's just interesting that like the speed at which it made it's made maybe plays a big part in in allowing things to happen and justifying things that wouldn't happen otherwise yeah well i think we should move on to days of wine and roses but i do want to one just the last note i have on the comedian uh, I could really have done without acted fantastically, certainly, but I could have done without watching Mickey Rooney stress eat spaghetti. God, I know it's <laughs> a nightmare. I want to now. Not a thing was I it a choice? I think so. Yeah. We, well, I mean, yeah. it does a lot to tell you just how like gluttonous and fucked up Mickey Rooney character is, right? Like you're <laughs> right, watching right, a grown right, ass right. man not be able to eat spaghetti, <laughs> which is like fascinating, right? Like you're like you're watching a person who's str- who's so 
fucking like just like gluttonous and like if- desperate for like to fill voids in himself that he eats a food that adults <laughs> know how to eat. Right. Like right. he does like like one of the, like like the king on a bad like <laughs> like medieval drama eating a turkey leg. It's just like fucking just <laughs> there's like fucking shit all over his face. Like, man, you're forty years old. What? You know how to eat what spaghetti. If, what if Pat this is a a culture marches on moment. And everybody eats spaghetti. And it's like weird that. to us, but everyone ate spaghetti like that in nineteen fifty eight. So Days of Wine and Roses. We'll move on to this one. Uh, this one is, uh, out of any that we've seen so far, the most very special episode. Oh, yeah. For sure. Uh, <laughs> Boy. Like, I, this, like, who wrote this? The AA? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Basically, pretty yes. much. Um, uh, is the answer to that yeah. question. Uh, so J.P. Miller, uh, who wrote this, uh, was working on The Unforgiven, which was a Western that starred Burnt Lancaster. And he hated it so much that he <laughs> he gave up writing. I love it. After, I just love it. This sucks yeah. so bad. I don't want to be involved anymore. <laughs> right, right. So he went back to New York and uh, was just hanging around and started thinking about. I wonder why. Uh, J. P. Miller, depressed, mad about his last writing gig. Goes back to New York, is hanging around, insisting that he never wanted to write again, and just started thinking about his alcoholic uncle. Yep. Uh, and then, thankfully, thinking about his alcohol, alcoholic uncle gave him an idea for something to write instead of just made him more depressed. Right. So, so he had an idea to write a story about two people, two alcoholics who fall in love, and uh, <laughs> called a producer, and the producer's like, "Yeah, write it." Um, right. Which then, which feels like the uh, most. I, and we were talking about this with the comedian, but like I was really, it's kind of hard to like not let these two bleed into each other. Feels exactly in that like, well, we have to write fifty of these, so like, fucking do it, man. Right. Like, whatever. Right, like, right, 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 right. Yeah, you got an idea? Um, fucking write it down. I'll read it later. We'll, like fifty-fifty shot. Probably we'll, we'll, we'll approve it because like, fuck, we yeah. gotta fill up fifty episodes a week a, a year. All right. The uh, the craziest thing in the background material on this one to me is that this was adapted to film in 1962 starring Jack Lemmon. Uh, yes. And this is the worst, the craziest thing I've ever heard. The the only person from this production in front of the camera or behind it who ended up in the film version is the guy who plays uh, her dad, the old man. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mr. Arneson. Uh, he comes back to the film version. But Frankenheimer particularly was not invited to direct and he was not invited direct because Jack Lemon says to Frankenheimer uh you can't you can't direct comedy and you're like I in have your not mind, you're seen like, what <laughs> I have not seen Jack Lemon's version of this story I kind of want but if to. it if if it's played as a comedy I'm mad at it I I don't uh, <laughs> know how you would construct a a bonus list <laughs> where we end up watching but that. Like um, I want to know listen. what a co- like. There's now this movie is very very melodramatic. Like don't get me wrong, this story is right, very, right, but like right, right. as a comedy, no comedy in it. It's insane. Like <laughs> it crosses a it crosses from melodramatic to 
what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, are they just yeah. are they just funny when they're drunk? Is it just the idea that drunks are funny? That Jack Lemon is playing a comedic drunk, whereas whereas the people involved here uh, are actually playing straight drunks. Yeah, I mean, uh, are somewhat well, com- they're, really. they're doing uh, passable. Yeah. Well. I I find TV drunks to I it's very very rare yes. to see a person on TV or film who is acting drunk who feels legitimately drunk. Right, right. You, right, you, you right, spend right. enough time around drunk people, which we all do eventually in our lives. It, it's sort of par for the course. You all serves, you all, everybody sort of begins to suss out, create a sort of uncanny valley of drunkenness where you're like, that person's not drunk. I know that person's I not think, drunk. I think a particular problem in this one is that alcoholics who are drunk mm. don't want to be seen right. as drunk. De- generally and try to act normal. Yes, this right. is very true. And that's a, that's a thing that st- does happen a little bit in yes. this with our main characters, but does not happen often enough that it feels natural. But in any case, right? This seems like a magnification uh, of the the party drinking that like people that is very real, but is not what happens. In, in, in I've been around enough drunks. We've all been around enough drunks. Right, that, right, like, right, right, right. It doesn't feel real when it comes to, like people who are like have a serious drinking habit. Right, right. They're trying to conceal um, from the people around them. Yeah. One uh, one really interesting fact that's uh, separated enough from this enough, but still. Uh, so the film version of this ended up airing on television, and Bill Withers caught a couple of minutes of it. Oh yeah, I know, I saw and, that, and then I could and stop from watching that. Myself. Wrote wrote "Ain't No Sunshine," which is fantastic. Like but, I, I, <laughs> because... it did kind of fuck me up because I did read that because I was trying <laughs> right. to sort out. I was trying to suss out like. With this one and the last one, um, I was because Plex is very confused about what version of this I'm watching. Yeah, For both of them, because there's also the 700 thing. things named the comedian. Um, right. Apparently, right, right, right. it wants me to watch something with Robert De Niro that has a 36 on Rotten Tomatoes, um, which I was like, boy, howdy. Um, yeah. Not not an adaptation of this. I thought it might uh, be, but so. turns out it's not. Um, yeah, it's not. So like I uh, I was trying to figure that stuff out, right? I was like trying to sort of like what what am I watching? Like what is the thing I'm going to be watching here? And then I somehow only didn't read any of the other stuff, but did find out about the song. And I was like, well, now I'm going to sing that song to myself the entire time we watch this movie, <laughs> right, 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 which is right. what happened. I did in, t- in fact sing that song to myself the entire time I watched this movie. I just kept saying, I know, 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 for the entire hour and a half that I was watching I, this. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I don't live with you, Adam. <laughs> I'm glad it was just me and the animals I'm pet sitting. And so, as as previously stated, this is the first introduction of video technology into this whole television process, probably basically, but certainly to the it's certainly, to Playhouse. It's 90. certainly early. Yeah, I I don't know. I wasn't yeah. clear from Frankenheimer if this was the literally first one he ever did, or if it was just like very very early. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's... It was a, a that, little hard to say. He kind of sounded like it was the first one, but then, like, the way he talked about it later, it's like, it might be one of those things where he's like, well, I know it's very early, but I don't know 100% that this is the first one, because they were, again, doing one a week. So, like, right, it's right. also possible that it's a very, very early one, but not the first one. Yeah. Um. So the opening AA meeting is 
taped, and then they played that on the broadcast, uh, but weren't able to edit it. So they still had to shoot it as if right. yeah, as yeah. if it were so the video live tape editing is still not a thing. Yeah. Uh, and then because of that, they're able to do the dissolve into the entirely entire other set, which which brings up you know one of the most interesting things in the three we watched last week was talking about the different ways they handle those right, set and right. costume changes. Yeah. Um, well, and here you're so getting here into we the, get. the idea that like oh now we don't have to worry about that anymore, right? Like we right, can just right, 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 right. Tape some of it ahead. Um, yeah, that it it is really fascinating. Well, I mean, they already had like film reel that they would play. Like his, uh, right, right, like right. He talked about well, the difference being that like tape doesn't take three seconds to get up to speed, and then you have to get you know like you could right. just play a tape, like even yeah. early well, tape you could just play because it's magnetic read head like doesn't need time I to would, spin up. I would forgive you for being too distracted to notice, but we do get some of that background film as the window scene out yes. behind yeah, yeah, Mickey yeah, Rooney yeah. while he's eating the spaghetti Absolutely. at the restaurant. <laughs> And, and there's, that, street, that's a, there's street life happening. Yeah, there, there, that is not, that is, that is very. There's no reason why they wouldn't use a technique that works in filmmaking. Right. It's like, right, okay, right, we're going right, to right, do, right. like, you know, we, you, you're going to use that. But the thing is, is that's much more temperamental, right? Like, it has issues with it. Whereas yeah. this one, they could probably uh, Frank, play directly into the feed, right? Like, they don't even have to. They don't have to play it on a screen right. on the set. They can just. Right, feed right, it into right, the right. feed directly, like, play it into the feed directly, and not have to like do any of that weird shit. Yeah, Frankenheimer, when when talking about using tape for this, also says we well, you couldn't you couldn't edit tape uh, at all. Then you couldn't make any cuts on tape. Uh, I did that for the next one, implying that the very next episode of Playhouse Twenty, he had figured that well, out. Well, I his mean, own. I feel I'm like not sure if that's I feel like the real, logical but... leap to like wait a minute. We can write over this thing with this other thing if we put right, right, the, right. the idea of like having like like having two of them and like dubbing one over the other seems like it would come really quickly. You'd be like, oh shit, like right. we got this figured out. We okay, we know what to do now. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you know it's not reacting like film. Right. Yeah, it, it's probably uh, like as long just... as you get past the idea that you're not gonna like sit there with a pair of scissors and actually fucking cut shit out, you're probably right, gonna figure right, it out right, pretty right, quickly. Right. Fascinating that they used it. Uh, it seems like the writer, uh, our star, um, our male lead, everybody just spent a whole heck of a lot of time with Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, J.P. Miller seems to have spent the most time, right? Like he, they describe, he spent a long time. Right, 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 like going right, to, right, right, like, right. But yes, also, yes, our lead actor also, like, fucking, like, I guess, like, yeah. went to meetings and, like, started, like, even became, like, a... Yeah. A mentor or something. It's Cliff like, gee, many Christmas. Yeah, Cliff. Cliff Robertson talks. He got, he got into. So it. he got the role five weeks before air day, and they rehearsed for two weeks before air day. So he had three weeks of prep, with no guidance basically. You know, no one telling him what he needed to do. So he just started going to AA meetings and ended up with a mentor who would call him at three a.m. from Skid, or with a mentee rather, uh, who would call him at three a.m. from Skid Row. Uh, yeah, that's very, I don't know. I, I feel like going to AA meetings, uh, under false pretenses as acting study, uh, is, is probably a thing bad. that happens pretty often and yeah. is not great. It's not good. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it is, it is, you get into a very weird and murky territory here because 
yeah. it is ostensibly for a story that is positive, right? Like it is, it is right, right, it is right, right. singing the in many ways singing the praises of Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's like you get into that weird like, did I do a bad thing to do a good thing kind of uh, situation? I think mentor. I think was Cliff Robertson completely just under false pretense? He didn't tell them at all. They didn't know who he was. They yeah, didn't know I guess he was so. Actor. He said he went in regular street clothes. Because I'm so really bothered by was. the fact that he also describes becoming like a uh, like a mentor to one of them. And it's like, but you're yeah. not an alcoholic. Like, you can't right. offer this still... person like legitimate advice about how to deal with the problems they're feeling yeah. because it's all coming from a place of like a false. Now, if if Cliff Robertson, maybe Cliff Robertson was going was. and got sober in those it's three also weeks quite possible and, that Cliff Robertson maybe had, yeah. there's a very is, real is possibility sort of hedging that, that yeah. like he doesn't want to talk about that but that like it right. actually had a very meaningful and positive impact on his life I can also right, believe that right. um, yeah whereas whereas J.P. Miller went you know announced himself. yeah he was like, observation right? Right? He, he didn't yes. he didn't attend a meeting under false pretenses he was working with the with the people who were running AA, which meetings, is completely on the up letting and up. them like that is right on the totally up and up, fine. letting yeah. them tell him what to present. You know, they have actual AA material. This show ends with uh, the announcer actor coming back on to say, "Hey, uh, if this is something that you, you need feel help. like you need help with, <laughs> yeah, find your local chapter or write to the main office in New York, and they can well, tell you where to find." So them. that so that's a, this is another interesting thing about. So we talked about a little bit about veterans' issues and things like that earlier and then last episode as well this is a really fascinating one because it is it is it is also a veterans issue for sure but what's fascinating about this is we and i grew up with very special episodes that were directed down at us by people who were older than us and felt that we as young people had a problem like all these special episodes we watched were like fucking essentially just dare propaganda right they were all just like right you know, now the the kids on Beverly Hills nine zero two one zero are doing are doing some version of like Molly or some shit. Like I don't know. It's all forty year olds or fifty year olds writing about what they feel like is a problem with teenagers. This is not that. This is people of an age writing about other people of a, the same age, and and probably in many ways talking about issues that are real pressing issues for them, maybe personally. It, it has a very different feel. Than, oh yeah, than yeah. That. No, this is adult media aimed at adults, right? It, right? Exactly, written, written by, by adults, adults for not. adults about adult issues, and then and then seeming. It, so what it gives it is a certain amount of earnestness that those those very special episodes don't have, right? That ending right. like thing feels very real rather than the shit we got as kids, right? Like uh, also also like you know the Saturday morning anti drug commercials. Uh, were always made by people who were obviously doing tons of cocaine. <laughs> right, absolutely true. So, like, absolutely true. Uh, uh, very, very yeah. true. I, I might, but like, but my point is, is that like, we, it, it creates a very interesting feel to the end of this of this story, because it ends in what feels like a very heartfelt thing rather than a very callous thing. Right. 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 Um, right. There's no. It doesn't feel cynical. No. Which. Which a lot you of that know, stuff does about, feel cynical. Even even in our in yeah. the modern era where we are we we get hit by this kind of stuff fairly often. Um, yeah. even the most earnest of this stuff, because of sort of the capitalization of a lot of this stuff, doesn't feel earnest when it's all said and done. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This, I mean, this is obviously very, I mean, this is all paid for by advertisers. This is is already part of that system. But I feel like partially maybe because it's so quickly, quickly jammed out with so little like, like there's a very real possibility that there was a liquor commercial uh, right. uh, during this, uh, during this, I mean, there certainly was a tobacco commercial, which is, oh yeah, like 100%. it feels very much of a kind, right, right. But like, yeah, there's there's a very real chance that like some sort of alcohol commercial featured during the of a uh, 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 commercial break on this show, um, which is just you could never imagine happening, like. Or alt- alt- right. or alternatively, like in a very very dark and cynical way, right? Where like fucking like Bacardi makes an anti like, <laughs> like alcohol abuse ad, right? Like it, I don't know. It 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 doesn't feel cynical in that way. Is my point? I'm sure it has been happening since before you moved away from America. But the frequent living in a college town, especially, I see these very often of of billboards from beer companies, uh, or or general beer advertisements that both tell you don't drink this if you're under 18 right but also tell you hey when <laughs> or if you're under 21 rather uh but also tell you hey when you're over 21 it's a lot of fun yeah uh, well i mean i remember like i i don't know why specifically bacardi but for some reason it's emblazoned in my brain that every bacardi commercial ended with like drink responsibility like it, it ended in this like little right, thing right, where right. an announcer voice would be like Bacardi oh, reminds you I mean, of that's, responsibility. I know they all end that way. That's but like, like, there's a requirement for some of, of reason. Ads, the Bacardi one is baked into my brain. Um, yeah, yeah. Like something about the voice or something. But it's like, well, that was already a very, that's a legal thing. It's all very cynical. Um, but like, right. yeah, it, it's just, I, maybe because of how much on fire the world is now, I feel like we get <laughs> yeah. so much. Of these, like everything, quite a lot of modern media feels like a very special episode of X, where well, it's it is the commodification of not just the commodification of care and the ability to care for one another, mm-hmm. but also the commodification of the language of caring. Right. Uh, right. It's just you know that's. Everything has been monetized and commercialized and, uh, you know, all of the, I don't want to use the word woke pejoratively here, uh, but all of the legitimate left-leaning slogans eventually get showing up in like Pepsi. Yeah, they eventually all get, um, you know, yeah, get, um, what's the word I'm, I'm I'm struggling for the word that means to take (laughs) away from people who are using things legitimately. Right, um, right, right, right. They they all get co-opted, appropriated, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, like they, that's the part of the system, right? And that that, that to take the yeah. teeth out of things that are very meaningful by by using them. Like suddenly companies are using them, and then suddenly they have no meaning at all. Right. Um, one of the I things mean, I'm, I, I'm called the mind is is I I listen to a lot of podcasts, and now apparently yeah. Hulu too, is something like Better Help. Um, not yes. to take this in a really weird direction, but like. I, you know, I'm a big supporter of the idea of mental health care and, and all, and like, and most of the people who talk about it are talking about it from very earnest places. Yeah. Like when I listen to a podcast and the people are talking about it on the podcast, they are saying, coming from a very earnest place. They're being paid to do it. 
but they are coming they are telling very earnest real stories about their need for mental health care which given the state right. of the world and and everything that's going on i think is is yes is, is good it's good to talk about that kind of stuff every everyone should have a therapist right Everyone should not have a better health therapist. Right, but it's all no in service of better, better help, which has essentially <laughs> right. co-opted this idea and commercialized it in a way that is way more extreme than previously mental health care yeah. was commercialized. It was already intensely commercialized because of the nature of the American healthcare system, but this is right. like right. an extra step, right? This is the uberfication of mental health care, yes. which is very, very scary. Because what you're... Right. What, like, I'm sure mental health professionals could talk about this more at length, but like you're going to drive down the value of mental health care to the point where mental health care specialists can no longer afford to be mental health care specialists in a meaningful way, right? Well, it's it's not just the uberfication; it's also the Facebookification because better better health better help has also come under criticism for. Uh, Are they taking like metadata? Harvesting from it? metadata. Oh, fuck, man. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I luckily. I don't live in America. I don't have to deal with some of this shit, like yeah. because yeah. that doesn't exist here. But but I listen to enough ads where I'm like, this is some fucked right, up shit right. going on. Or it just feels icky. It feels from, gross from what you've experienced, like, right? And, and yeah, and and it and right. you're like and you're thinking to yourself like, that's become part and parcel of of people talking about a very earnest thing that is very real for them. Is also because of the nature of things directly connected to something that's very gross, right? Right. Well, perhaps from that, it's it's a good time to pivot. Last week, I said uh, toward the end of the episode that we should talk a little this week about the fact that most of these shows, Playhouse 90 obscures it if it doesn't, but most of these shows are directly controlled by a single advertiser, yes. right? U.S. Steel Hour. Uh <laughs> You know, and that you know that carries over. You know, you have the Colgate Comedy Hour with Abbott and Costello too. Right, like, I mean, this you know, is prior to this, very old. But so, yeah, like radio, um, yeah, exactly the same thing. Yeah, but but the idea of um, you know Playhouse is CBS controlled. You know, they're still they've still got sponsorship, right? And that's how TV works, right? Um, but the fact that you know really artistic things are happening in spaces that are wholly controlled by uh, Philip 76 right. or us steel or, uh, you know, uh, Philip Morris even, right. you know, um, uh, yeah, it's just, it's at the very least, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean uh, that I, and like, it's very much a bygone era, right? Like, because now like just having your name at the beginning and end of a thing isn't good enough. Right. Like it's not, Right, like right, advertising right, has right, moved right, on, right. right? We're no longer in a place where, like, I. This is mostly true. Well, it's not entirely true. Every major Japanese broadcast does pretty much start with a, here are the major sponsors for this particular TV show thing. Uh, anybody who's ever watched Japanese TV knows what I'm talking about. Anybody who hasn't probably doesn't. Yeah. Literally, it's borderline every anime, borderline every Japanese TV show starts with, here are the major sponsors for this show as a little thing. Uh, it's just a thing. And, and I don't know how effective it is. Some of them appear as commercials in the show. Sometimes they don't. And you're like, okay, you sponsored the show, but you didn't put any of your commercials at the commercial break. Okie dokie. Cool. It's almost always Hitachi. I don't know why. 
Um, <laughs> it's, it's like, I feel like it's like the the major. They're like the grand sponsors, what they call it, for like fucking every show I watch. I don't know why. Um, I think they may just be on that channel. I don't. I don't really know what's going on there. I don't really do pay remember, attention enough. Do you remember in 1997 when when Ford sponsored an airing of Schindler's List, and there was a single commercials break? Otherwise, an uninterrupted airing of Schindler's List. I there was do a not remember single that. commercial break in the mirror in the middle that was one Ford commercial. Oh, that's that's weird. Uh, that's very weird. Yeah. Um, but like, but but by and large, right? We we have left most of this because everybody wants their commercial commercial, right? They don't want just a sponsorship that like leads into the show. They want an actual commercial where they're like. Because they've somehow somebody's figured out that like that's a better way to sell shit is like, right? Make right, this right, tiny right, little right. mini drama inside of this other drama that like sells the product, right? Now, mind you, other media have gone backwards on that and changed a lot of that because like most podcasts are, like, are more like old fashioned radio style advertisements where the hosts of the podcast, who are the people you like, are actually there for, read the ads. Speaking of which, here's our first ad. No, I'm just uh, <laughs> we're adding ads, I, I guys. I want to clarify because I just I want to let me talk about better. Just look it up. No. There were actually there were actually two commercial interruptions during oh, okay. that airing of Schindler's List of two minutes, less than two minutes apiece, but they were Ford uh, commercials. So two separate Ford commercials. That's yeah, yeah. It's a fucked up shit. Um, yeah, no, I know. I I mean, just just. You know, it. The more you think about it, the worse it gets. Yeah, no, it, it, it does uh, not. If you know it's anything about the better, history of Henry sure. Ford, yeah. it's not. It's just not. It's just not good. Yeah, no, it's so, real, real bad. Uh, like, I feel like Ford, uh, maybe, yeah, wolf. But yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's. Oh boy, yeah, no, yeah. Then you start following. Yeah, if you take that other, the <laughs> other direction of that, it gets Sorry. real Sorry. dark, real fast. <laughs> it's real bad. We do not want to think yeah. about Ford, the company or the man, uh, with right, relation to right, that. Right, 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 right. Right. Um, uh, but anyway. I don't, yeah, the, the the sponsorship thing is 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 fascinating because, again, I think it's got to be a function of the the fast paced nature of the thing. Meant that like these companies kind of had to probably be pretty hands off, right? They couldn't probably spend a lot of time and energy. Yeah, that's fair. Like digging right. into like, oh, this one, like obviously none of them are really openly saying like. It's 1956 or whatever. No one's like writing about the dangers of cigarettes yet, really nationwide. I mean, there are definitely people who yeah. know, but well, there is the flip side to that though that the writing is the longest part, right? Pre-production, right, that's true. That's true. Is the longest part because it's not like when Rod Serling got to got hired to write the comedian. They said, "Okay, uh, you're going to write this story, and it's going to air on this date, uh, which is they were three weeks like, away or whatever." Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, he probably submitted a script like months and months, if not a year in advance. Uh, and, you know, they had a lot of time for that to run through editors and standards and practices. Right. And maybe sponsorship when it was something like U.S. Steel uh, or whoever the primary sponsor of Playhouse 90 ended right. up being. You know, I, I, I really do wonder, though, if this is maybe just one of those phenomena that's sort of like we've been through it in our lives, this sort of weird, wild west phenomenon times where, like, the sponsorships didn't bother to... They know they're not going to say... No one's going to say anything of negative about U.S. Steel in their script. 
Right. And so they're like, maybe there's like, well, it just looks good to be on this thing that people like. You you know what I mean? Like, the, we we in our life have seen this happen because we grew up with the internet, yeah. and like we're like, those days are mostly disappearing now. But like this idea of like, well, just being kind of a tangentially attached to this thing that people like is like just good av- like good advertising. It's just yeah. good. Well, think of, think about your think about your uh, your podcast advertising is is always uh, well not always but is often. Uh, you know, especially when you get a popular enough podcast, uh, the advertiser will say, "Well, there, there are certainly things we don't want you to say, right? Uh, but, but basically, we're not even giving you a script, right? Right? Or we, uh, yeah, we have some talking just, points. Talk about these talking points. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. positively mention. Uh, make sure you get your link in there uh, and say how much you can save, but not what percentage of the product that actually is, right? Um, ah. <laughs> uh, Get a hundred dollars off this fifteen hundred dollar mattress. Right, right, right. It's, uh, well, super it's, useful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but but it, anyway. it's like get a get a you know get get this thing in the mail. What's what's really fascinating? I will, <laughs> I will never get over the like the fact that there are now I guess like seven thousand different fresh market boxes that can be shipped to your house. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I feel like I you hear get, about a new one every podcast. It's you get all sorts of meals. Alarming. Um, very good. I assume there's just but thou- I, I'm trying to think in my head I always think to myself I start to contemplate the idea of how exactly how much food in individual boxes is currently flying through the air in America at any given time like it's <laughs> like like obviously like you know you move product to market and things like that to, to make that's how food comes onto people's tables right, the idea right, that it's just right. in individual boxes just hurtling through the skies and being driven around in cars, it's just wild to me. I don't, I, I don't know. It's like, boy, I don't know. We got grocery stores. Um, yeah, it's not. It's, well, that's it's the biggest part of the problem efficient. is we don't have grocery stores. But you <laughs> right, don't have right, grocery stores. Right. I have grocery stores. Yeah, I have a farmer's market. Yeah, five minutes on the road. <laughs> um, I, my, but yeah, it's just you know there is there is an aspect of it that this stuff obviously this stuff wouldn't. No one's making this stuff out of the goodness of their heart. No one's no. putting it on air no. in front of 60 million people out of the goodness of their heart. Uh, maybe we could develop a society where art was treated like that, Would but it's great, not the really. one they exist. Yeah. So so the only reason that Requiem for a Heavyweight uh, was seen by anyone ever is because U.S. Steel put up $100,000 to get it <laughs> put right. on. Right, and that's you know? why like, it is a wild thing to consider. And, 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 and it's... I I have to believe that that somebody like U.S. Steel basically knew. Well, nothing's gonna. Basically, I think U.S. Steel had to be operating on a like. Well, this is like water off a duck's back sort of scenario. Like we're never gonna look bad for whatever's on here. Like no matter what happens on here, a it only ever plays once. So fuck it. Who cares? Right. Like and of course there were you know radio shows and early TV shows and we, we've talked about. Um, uh, when we did the Mr. Arcadian episode, I think we talked about some of Orson Welles' radio work uh, and how, you know, he he was doing very overtly political radio stuff and he lost sponsorship and he ended up losing the show because no one wanted well, see, to sponsor him anymore. Right. right. And I wonder if that's part of what we're, is we've got this really specifically biased, not biased like in a negative way or anything like that, but biased set of, we only have eight of these these episodes. Right, like, right, and right, they, right. they're ones that were selected for us, right? We have a very serious, like, 
uh, curation problem here, where it's like maybe, maybe maybe these ones are really impactful. Days of Wine and Roses has a lot of sort of like messaging in it, but if you're doing yeah. fifty a year, and that's fifty on that day a year, this is not the right. only teleplay production right, right. that that studio does. This is the yeah. Thursday one. There's also the Wednesday <laughs> one and the Tuesday one. Uh, right. It would be interesting to see how many how many there actually are. I would love to but know. Yeah, the there is a that. lot. It was it was there. very much a lot. I would love to and know. We're talking thousands of episodes over the course of the existence of all of, of the show type. Right. Right. And I I would so, love to see I I don't know how you would make it, but it would be really neat to see an infographic of like days of the week and channels kind of laid out. <laughs> right. To see it like at any given time, exactly how many were running concurrently. Like Yeah. The only the only comparable information I would have to compare is one time I sat down and ran the numbers on how many murder a week shows oh yeah uh, on on CBS take place in New York City right and CBS New York had a higher murder rate than actual New York for most weeks. right yeah I know but that's <laughs> most definitely years. believable so yeah like yeah. Uh, so what I'm thinking though is if if you've got these like real spicy ones. Mixed into what is essentially just a kind of like gruel. Yeah. You're not, it's yeah. going to go mostly unnoticed, right? Like, you're not going to lose sponsorship we, because, like, the Orson Welles thing is like, well, Orson Welles in charge, and Orson Welles is probably making everyone <laughs> hyper political, right? right? That's going right, to lose you sponsorship. Right, right. If you have a couple spicy episodes in a show that no one ever gets to watch again, they float in once in a while, you could yeah. probably just let it go unnoticed. Right. And, and numbers-wise, we're seeing probably less than 1%. Right. Oh, definitely less than 1%. All of these that were ever made. And so, so you got to figure some executives like, well, be I like this milk one. Toast. And, right, like, right. and you also don't have, like, the same kind of real-time ratings. You don't have the same kind of, like, you can't really necessarily really super accurately probably predict exactly how many people turned the episode off because they didn't like the political messaging on it. Which, again, none well, of these I, are really I, overtly political. You're living in a in a time where people are more likely to actually like send a postcard or right. They might know, call. They might write complain, or complain. So. I mean, we do live in the era of Twitter, so I don't know right, if they're right, more right, or right, less right. likely to openly complain. But yes, um, what what I'm saying is is yes, you absolutely you probably get some postcards, but like those that's gone, like that like that episode's gone. So you get a little bit of feedback, but it's like it's like schoolwork feedback or something where it's like well. I will integrate this information into my process going forward, but that one's fucking over. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like now with like something like streaming, right? They they can actively interact with it in some way where like, oh, we're gonna take that one down, or we're not gonna show that episode anymore, or whatever. Right. But this is a time where like, no, that that already happened. That episode's down. It's gone. No one will ever see it right. again, except for some weird dweebs sitting on their computer and like. 50 years later watching it to make our podcast. No, some people in, right. who, some some other dweebs watching it on PBS like thir- 30 years later. <laughs> My point is like right. they they they're they're essentially to a certain extent protected by the fact that it is a is a non-reoccurring and uh, problem, right? And so even the people right. who wrote the postcard might skip for a few weeks and then a friend will say like, "Oh, did you see the one last night?" and they'll be like, "No." And they're like, "Ah, fuck, I missed it." And then they'll be right, right back, right, they'll be hooked right, right, back right. on, right? all it takes is a good episode i was actually contemplating this when we were talking i was watching i was reading it's like critical reception and there's a review i was like in my head i'm like 
what's the fucking point of reviewing a thing somebody will never ever be able to see again? It's like a like a one off play that no one will ever be right. able to see. So in this particular capacity, the review individual reviews of individual episodes is more like a marketing scheme by it functions more as a marketing plan than it does as an actual legitimate review because a review is useless to you. You cannot go seek out that episode. But what you can do is get drawn back into that program. It's like, oh, look, right. they're, they're really operating high class. They're really doing a good job right now. You should go check it out every Thursday. And so you're wondering, like, the role of the critic in this environment, though maybe, I don't know how much, they're not, like, being paid that way, I don't think, is to market the thing, the product as a whole. The concept. Yeah, it's really. like, oh, because um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fucking New York Times review for for well, Wine and Roses, Days of Wine and Roses, and which it, I'd not say the there's film, another interesting the aspect show. of it. Yeah, there's another interesting aspect of that, though, in that uh, reviewing is almost more pure in that way, I feel, uh, because no one will ever see it again. So all you're really doing, you know, maybe maybe you're making U.S. steal a couple more dollars in the long run. Uh, but what you're really doing is telling everyone who wants to hire Ron Surley next, everybody who wants to know how to hire John Frankenheimer next, that they did this really good thing. And it's in the New York Times that they did this really good thing. So, right. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You're, but that's still like, like, so the guy who, Jack Gould, <laughs> who wrote the review of this, is essentially running a Rod Serling, like, promo organization. My <laughs> right, point is, right, is that, right, like, right. it's really hard to determine what the point of a reviewer in this environment is. Right, right. Because right. no one can yeah. ever see, like, it's more. Yeah, you're, it I wasn't think you encouraging are, people to go see it again. Right. I, right. I guess you are right in the sense that, like, it is more pure, but it's more pure in the way that, like, weird blog posts from 1998 are more pure. In the sense <laughs> that, like, it's essentially a hyper-niche subject that, like, you're writing for your own pleasure, but it's in the New York Times. Yeah. Because, like, you're not... Nobody's... Lots of people are getting something out of you writing this, but none of those people are paying your bills, which is very... Yeah. Unless unless maybe they are. <laughs> I mean, like, they, they legitimately might be, I, I'm not going to pretend like the New York Times is above reproach when it comes to, like, fucking doing underhanded right, right, shit. Right, 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 Like, yeah. it's just fascinating because, like, there's just this review, and I'm like, I keep looking at it, and I'm like, you're not wrong. Your reviews aren't, isn't wrong. I was like, but, like, what does anybody get out of this? Other than maybe, like, the audience could go, oh, well, these episodes sound really interesting. Maybe I should check out that show. But that doesn't, I guess, in the sense that the audience gets the entertainment benefit out of watching these shows who's who's benefiting from the writing of these reviews it's very strange to me to think about um so here um u.s steel owned the new york times at the time. I'm just no no here's an interesting one so in 1959 playhouse 90 uh did an episode called judgment in nuremberg at nuremberg mm -hmm. Uh, with Max Schnell in it. Um, wow, interesting. Uh, anyway, is also one of the most notoriously censored television broadcasts of the mid-century period. Oh, interesting. One of the sponsors of Playhouse 90 was the American Gas Association, and it was feared that references to the gas chambers 
used to exterminate prisoners in the concentration camps would create negative association with natural gas used to heat American homes and fuel cooking appliances. As a result, all mention of the gas <laughs> chambers were stripped from the live audio feed, leaving abrupt silences in the broadcast. Oh, interesting. So there we go. We get we get the thing we were talking about, which is like... Yeah. At, it I, did happen. U.S. Steel isn't worried about them saying happened. something bad about U.S. Steel, but as soon as like... <laughs> It, get, yeah. it starts to encroach on something that could be dangerous to their business. The answer is to just cut out the sound. Well, that's what I'm saying. But so that what that tells me is, is that the speed or whatever of the production means that like, is rather than like rewriting the script, they're like ad hoc censoring it live, which is right. Like you would think you would not want to do right. You would think you would want to have it rewritten, but apparently the process didn't allow for that in any meaningful way. Yeah. There's apparently some argument as to whether American Gas Association or just an overzealous CBS executive demanded the cuts. Um, but that's also that's a thing, right? Like the where like yeah. where you censor. But that was out of like yeah, trying not to lose your sponsorship or whatever, right? Yeah, that was one that uh, Serling also wrote that one, and yeah, uh, and it led to even at the time, you know, people arguing about. Uh, or using it as a clear example of where uh, overwhelming commercial concerns would <laughs> stifle creative output, right? Mm. So, so I would like to point out that uh, the episode before um, of Wine and Roses in that season was the plot to kill Stalin, <laughs> which I haven't excellent. had a chance to actually read because I can't read well while I'm, while we're talking. But right, so. right, 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 right. It's just yeah. like it seems like man, they had like. Yeah, fifty episodes a month a year is a lot of time. To, <laughs> it's a lot of time to fill with ninety-minute yeah. teleplays. Like I, I don't right. know. Like it's just like apparently. Uh, I, I the only thing I saw on here is that uh, apparently uh, Khrushchev was so pissed about his uh, his um, portrayal in portrayal it. that he like had the uh, Soviet Union's ambassador file a formal complaint with the State Department. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. It's the only thing uh, I was able anyway. to read like clearly in this whole thing yeah. we're talking. But yeah, no, yeah. I mean, yeah. So like, it, it, I, what it, what that tells me is that the process that these were made under was not set up in a clear enough way that the the sponsor was just exerting direct control over the like initial. Um. Right, they didn't have Script editorial right. control yeah. in, until this air, airing is very interesting, too. Right, yeah, that's like, what I, I'm fascinated get by. The, the sort of it, what or makes did. me believe is that, to a certain extent, the creation process was somewhat black-boxed in the sense that, like, nobody was, no sponsor, like, agent was sitting in the yeah. production did someone angrily call this? Did someone angrily call the studio when yeah. it started to air? And they, they thought, oh, oh, this is a Nuremberg episode. Oh, oh, oh. And then somebody ran from an <laughs> then, office down the hall to, like, fucking start, like, pressing the, like, audio cut button. It's yeah. possible. Again, they're talking, you, they mentioned the possibly overzealous CBS executive. That's another very believable right. story where it's like, this guy just assumed it might cause trouble, is more worried about the bottom line than the sort of artistic integrity of the thing, of course. And yeah. just starts being like, well, f like, and maybe isn't even, like, in the part of the production that writes or anything like that is only in the part that like broadcasts. It's like, well, I'm going to fucking cut out the audio on these and yeah. who's going to stop yeah. me. 
it's a one-off broadcast, what's going to happen, right? Like, who's going to come in here and tell me, no, that's not what we want, you know? Yeah. So to to get back to the days of wine and roses, this one is also interesting for, uh, you know, it is, it is the most overtly... Uh, Preachy, I guess, yeah. but not. It's not. It's not even like preachy, preachy. But it is. You know, it is that very special episode. Yeah, I mean, it has a, a certain sort of um, topicalness that, like the other one. Yeah, it, it has a very specific agenda that the other ones. The other ones are more like just a traditional story. This one is like I'm going to get across a very specific point by the time this is over. Right, 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 right. Um, it's also, at least out of the ones we've seen so far, and of course we we haven't watched the first three yet. Uh, but out of the five we've seen, this is the lowest quality, I thought. Um, it is pretty it, low quality. It really feels like the, the corners are dark still. I mean, a lot of them have dark corners. This one, is the, I can't fair. remember if this is the comedian, was this was it was this one or the comedian, but one of them just had a thing on the screen in the middle, of, again, like the whole, like, the whole section of the I, screen was just, had a black thing on it for like I think, a few minutes. I think that was... Yeah, the, that was a little bit in this one. I don't remember seeing it, noticing it in any of the others, and maybe that's just the corners uh, have been. We can now gauge because these are. We can now gauge how much attention I was paying, but because these are course. cinescope, they're using the cinescope recordings instead of right, right, the right, thing right. That the, the corners other, will be dark. The corners are going to be dark because that's how it was broadcast onto the screen, and wouldn't have been noticeable on another TV because the other TV also wouldn't. The TVs they were shown on would, would also not have shown the corners. TVs didn't right. have square corners until we got right, into right, flat right, screen right, TVs. Right, right, like right. square corners are new, um, and so that that element is a thing we see because we're we're broadcasting what was a round right. thing flat. Under a square. We're making a yeah. fucking whatever th- those kind of maps are called. Um, fine, fine. That cre- that complaint was not valid. No, I, okay, I still I noticed it every time In I was watching case. every corner. Like this, right. this one though, I will admit has quality control issues it is rough to look at i would say that the roughest one is still probably the one is the first one we win from the south yes the win from the south had yeah. really serious audio and visual issues it did it um did. yeah that's fair. i got the impression that that one must have been a very rough copy that they were working yeah. with a few of them this one and oddly enough a few of them this one and the comedian, I noticed like video glitches, which I suspect yeah. happened when they transferred the cinescope over to broadcast, or alternatively, when they copied the VHS copies of the broadcast on PBS onto DVD. Somewhere maybe, it's maybe. hard to determine. They're like they're the glitches you get in videotape, though. They're not the glitches you get right, from right. They cinescope. They're like where the bar yeah. will just like the whole like a whole part of the bar of the screen will artifact up for a second and stuff like that it's like yeah and i'm like that's not it on was, my recording it, because every time i play it it happens so it seemed to happen for me in this one yeah uh every single cut almost yeah and i and i wonder cut. i wonder if when pbs or somebody put this together in the act of cutting out the commercial like Oh, that could be what happened here. Now, I don't know. An interesting thing that we don't know is I don't know if the commercial breaks were built into the Cinescope recording. I don't think so. Because my understanding was is that the Cinescope recording was played back for the live broadcast on the West Coast, or alternatively, in this case, actually, the East Coast. And 
they just inserted commercials live is what I assume they did. But the recording, the Cinescope recording would have had a would have had a three-minute break built into it. So my point, though, is, is that I don't know whether or not the Cinescope recordings included advertisements or not. I suspect they didn't. I suspect the Cinescope recordings had just blank air that then they broadcasted appropriate commercials on the West Coast over, but maybe they didn't. Maybe the, maybe the commercials were included. Well, it would have been national advertisers probably. So right, so I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know how the affiliate system worked exactly during this era. Right. So, or maybe there's some of a little bit of both, but obviously PBS had to edit something out because no matter what, there would have been a three-minute or two-minute space where something either wasn't there or right. was there, but there was a space because these are essentially you right. play it and forget it, right? You just set the recording, you set the play. You're not going to start and stop film. You're just going to play. And so into the camera. So um they had to cut something out, and I guess this, the cutting process probably fucked up the video a little bit. Um, and that's why we get these weird, these non-film glitches. Like, they're not film pro- errors. They're actual video glitches, which is very right, right, funny right, to look right. at. But yes, I would agree this one's kind of low quality. I It is also, I don't know, it's very dark at times. Uh, and some of the other ones have had a problem with that, and I suspect that might be a fact that, like, on a cathode ray tube TV, the dark spots would have been bright anyway. Because of the bleed yeah. from the light from the other one. They wouldn't have been... The whites on the cathode ray tube would have been brighter and would have, therefore, sort of... The contrast would have been super high. Whereas, like, here, on our version, it kind of... A lot of very muddy blacks that are not super easy to see what's going on sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, and a couple times where uh, the light caught the liquor in the glass uh, and sort of... I. I guess it would have been a lens flare originally, right. but the way it comes through this process is just a a black spot right. really quick. Yeah, there's I yeah. I don't know. I would say that in terms of like Criterion Collection stuff, this has not received a lot of TLC um, to improve what would yeah, have originally wonder... broadcast on PBS. It feels more like a DVD right. transfer is what it feels like. It feels like somebody took the right. PBS VHSs that definitely existed. And like, just transfer them, and then like, well, we've we've done our job here. Whereas, like, a lot of Criterion work that we get has a lot of like corrections done to it to make to like preserve the nature of the film as best as they can, right? Like, where like right. Criterion, depending on the release and everything like that, pays to have things, or because Janice already did it for a European release or something like that, somebody has paid right. to like clean it up and make it look. Better than and like do things like color correcting and like and like lighting correcting where like oh like a cathode ray TV broadcast would have looked very different than what we get on our TV now so we've got to do things like play with the contrast a little bit to make it so that like the blacks the whole thing doesn't just get swallowed in black and things like that but because this is and I'm I'm going to make an accusation here (laughs) because this is not have been already gone through somebody like Janice or somebody who did it for. A, pre, uh, a previous release to clean it up, but rather seems to just be a direct PBS to v, a v, PBS VHS transfer to DVD straight up by Criterion themselves. It feels like they didn't dump any money into it at all. They took, well, Maybe. these VHSs we got are good enough. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, PBS had cleaned it up. That's you know one reason that it exists. Well, that the Golden Age of Television show existed be- was because they were able to touch it. Up right, right, a right, bit. right, right. But but even the process of going from those, but the Age of Television thing broadcast right. in the eighties. Right, right, like right, right, right. already by the time even Criterion's releasing the DVDs, it's twenty years later. Yeah. Like their ability, they didn't go back to the raw Cinescope sources. Clearly, they went to the VHS. Or you know the PBS pre-record like recordings of it, right? And they right, cl- right, like right. mess with those, and I suspect they didn't put a lot of energy into cleaning those up, other than to make sure that they like played and sounded correct. Um, not to be like really negative. I'm just saying that like this doesn't right. feel like it has the TLC that a lot of the other releases we watch on Criterion have. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Because I feel like a little bit of like playing with contrast and stuff probably would have made some of these episodes way easier to like watch. Um, instead, you'd have to do that like yourself or something. I don't know. Um, or or maybe like Criterion was like, look, the source material was hot garbage. PBS already did everything they could. Maybe we're gonna just copy it over. Just be done with it. Um, That's possible. Yeah. This one is the most melodramatic. I oh, think, yeah, for sure, of for sure. We've watched, right? Uh, so you know, there's it's got that going for it. Uh, you know, it does. It it makes fine television. It does. I and mean, I fine, would. I mean, if I if it were certifiably okay, if it were 1957 uh, <laughs> and I had a TV and I were, I would probably be watching this. I'm sure. Right, right, right. Like I remember watching. And I wanted to have been disappointed in choosing to use my Thursday night to watch this. Right. Yeah. So. It, it, it is. I would say that like. I got a little overwhelmed by the melodrama at times. I can, I have like a certain maximum melodrama capacity that this one really got close to like going over the edge on. Uh, I w- by the time we had our third or fourth binge session, I was getting a little yeah. tired. I'm glad for the sake of the story that he falls off the wagon. Yes, I and agree. I'm glad that I do think they made uh, it a little a- silly, which is not good. Yeah. Him falling and out I the think, wagon is kind of the closest thing to a joke we get in the entire movie. That's fair. Um, <laughs> I thought this one was a little long. I don't think that Playhouse 90 needed the extra yeah. half hour for the story. The comedian uh, was bursting at the seams. This one is maybe could have been an hour and been fine. Um, yeah, yeah. I, so. I'm fascinated by the way this one ends. Not just that, that, not that ending that we talked about already, but the fact that like it kind of leaves things... Yeah, hanging, which is a which is an interesting choice, right? It, it it kind of presents a world where it's like, look, you're this is not, you're not going to magically fix this all at the end, like this, right? And 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 it, right. and I feel like that might be part of AA's interface with this right. is the and, idea that you're not going to be, you should not end this on a hey, and now everything's fucking unicorns and and rainbows. yeah, and of course. Of course, from AA's perspective, and this is you know somewhat realistic, but certainly not universal. From AA's perspective, uh, the wife who says I can do this on my own through sheer willpower is going to fail, right? Right, and and and, and, and we're definitely that. operating from AA's perspective. And, and bear in mind, like yeah. we we've a lot of things have happened since this era that that more nuance have entered into these kind of conversations a little yeah. bit, not a lot, but but. A is very early in the, the like kind of like rehabilitation sort of universe in a lot of ways, right? And so like, right, like they're promoting their program, which they don't, you know, they don't make any money off of it or anything like that. It's not like 
it is it is interesting. Right. right. It is it's interesting because they big they're, AA. They're they are trying to promote their version of this, but it's still kind of amazing to see, right? Like it's like and presenting as like she's ending we have already seen that she can't do it, but like they're not necessarily pretty it's not necessarily a bad ending. It's just a look. It it is very brutally honest about the fact that this is not going to we're right. not gonna be able to tie a bow on this. This is not gonna end like it is ta-da. culture of the time, it is a little unfortunate that uh and at least it's not like overtly verbalized, but it is obvious that uh Kirsten is a worst person, not just because she can't get over her alcoholism, but also because her alcoholism is making her a worse mother. Right, yes. Yeah. So, like uh, don't yeah, I mean, there's and a lot I of did. there's a lot of fucked up cultural shit in this that we are not right. we don't really have time to get into. There's the fact that like he's basically made his daughter into his surrogate wife to like do the things that he's not going like. The only time right. we interact with the daughter basically at all is her doing wife slash mom stuff, right? Um, which is probably presented and, here as a positive, right. but like is and definitely think, fucked up and negative. Like you can you can fucking iron that shit yourself, kid, dude. Like just yeah. do it. It it's it is good that the that the narrative shows first him enticing her back to drink right? right after she had the baby she she got sober yeah um and then he's like well the baby's alive and we can buy formula even though we can't afford formula when we're buying liquor but uh and then um and then she gets him back you know well and they, yeah they're, they're they are so, bad you know, for each they're other. bad for each other yeah yeah um so yeah i think you know this is i i would argue it is that, a realistic portrayal for better or worse right of an alcoholic couple at the time, I right. think. And and, so. and I would argue that I think probably in in a lot of people's minds at the time, like we can, there's a lot of iffy choices made, but like I think they were, I, I it's hard to see like where, the, you know, I get where they're coming from and there's a lot of really interesting choices made about like having it be the mother rather than the father, which is, it's hard to say if that's like what, I feel like the the alcoholic father is a more stereotypic sort of paradigm. Right, right, right. And so then playing around with that is kind of interesting here. But you're right in the sense that also taking into account cultural sort of thought processes at the time, she looks way worse than if it were him. If it were only him, I think probably the audience would have written it off as like not really that big of a deal. But but also, also. Yeah, no. Yeah. I think alcoholism was probably less likely to be uh, diagnosed in women at yeah, the time that's a- absolutely. than in men. Right? And there's also a lot of things that you can read about, about like we're headed into, this is not taking place in the suburban environment, but we are headed into right. suburban housewife malaise territory when we start right, talking right, about right, like right. the way people self-medicated to deal with absolutely crushing depression. <laughs> like yes. of being completely isolated from communities that, would have formally formed the backbone of their sort of co- uh, social experiences. Um, alienation. Yeah, I mean, like America yeah. built an alienation machine and and fed everybody yeah. into it. And this is this is not taking place in the suburban environment, but many of the people watching it were in a suburban environment already. Yeah. It's nineteen fifty six or fifty seven. Like, 
sorry, 58, there's a lot of people in suburban environments who are already probably starting to feel the pressure of that malaise. And, you know, yeah, just because you didn't film it there, probably because your studio, you probably because, like, you haven't really fully integrated the idea that your studio is in New York, but, like, your audience isn't in New York or whatever. Or, sorry, your studio's in... Well, your story... Your story set in New York, but your studio is in L.A. It is in L.A. And none yeah, of and none North. of your audience lives in either of those places. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think we can probably pull this to a close. Um, this week we were talking about Days of Wine and Roses and the comedian. The last two uh, episodes of the Golden Age of Television box set, which was eight telefilms from various. Uh, anthology television series of the 50s uh it's a real eclectic mix of things but but mostly all very good yeah uh you know each one of these is obviously here for a I reason i mean to be uh, fair we haven't watched the third the first disc so those could be all yeah. hot garbage and we're gonna regret everything we said here it's like oh my god really, those first three were trash I really and i know i, I know, don't think I'm they da- are uh just saying, I'm going to hedge my bets here. I think okay? they even front-loaded it, honestly, looking at okay. what we have left. I just I'd like the idea that we're going to watch didn't. these and we just watch but... three ones that are just absolute trash. And we're like, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. These are terrible. This one, this one's just a – this one's talking about how great Nazis were. What did, what did we do? <laughs> what did we say? What have we done? Uh, uh, next week, I am uh, very, very excited. We'll be watching Steven Soderbergh's Che from 2008 – uh, starring Benicio del Toro, uh, so yeah, really excited about that. Soderbergh's made some fantastic films in the last couple of years. I don't know if you've watched them, but Kimmy is very good, very great, uh, very great. Uh, just came out, 2022, uh, COVID era uh, tech thriller, uh, and it's just it's, what's it called? It's Kimmy, K I M I. Okay, I'll, I'll I'd never even heard of it, so. Yeah, yeah, highly recommend it, but you won't have time to watch it in the next week. So uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Adam. I never have time to watch anything. I know, I know. Um, so look forward to that. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm as always the Adam Glass. With me as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You can find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My partner is John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and you can find him at J Patrick Dorgan. Check out more of the show at lostincriterion.com or hey, give us a review on iTunes. It's nice. If you really like what you hear, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Hey, our theme music is by Jonathan Pape. Check him out at jonathanpape.com. And thanks for listening. We appreciate it.